Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book nine, chapter five. No comments. No comments. It was one of those chapters, man. Like, I don't even remember, remember what happened, but these were the discussion prompts. Marshal Deval, a high-ranking French general, is compared unhospitably to General Arakchev as efficient, cruel, and incapable of expressing his devotion otherwise than cruelty. Why do you think Alexander and Napoleon keep such men in their councils and in, and in charge for their armies? Do you think Balashov might have been sent through the camp of Devout on purpose by Murat? Um, these military chapters, man, some of them just... Even though Murat is in this chapter, and Murat's awesome. God, it's hard. I'll read you this other thing, though. Someone posted uh, their name's The Real Bobcat 23... I've realized I'm likely never going to catch up to you guys. Due to freshman year of college, I've had very little time to read over the last few months, but now that it's summer, I've picked it back up and I've only just got to book three. I'm more than 100 chapters behind you all, but I'm determined to get through this book even if it takes me the rest of college because this book just keeps getting better and better. I just really lack the aptitude to keep up with something like this. Anyways, I wish you everything. I wish everyone's still reading War and Peace this year, whether you're caught up or in book one, an excellent time enjoying this book. Well, thank you, the real Bobcat Twenty Three. That's very nice of you, and we are enjoying this book. And you know, hey, catch up if you can. It'd be awesome. But the th- cool thing about this post was that a whole lot of people have posted things like, you know, just read it at your own pace. Don't worry, it's fun to just read it when you want to. No one said that. I tried to paraphrase, and I ended up saying it in a dumb way. Um, other people saying I've just reached. Um, Book three, book four, etc. Um, we're at the halfway mark. So, you know, it's not unrealistic that you can catch up. There's people who read this book in a couple of weeks, you know, a couple of days even. Just blast through it. So, like, to reach the halfway point in the next month or so, if you just really got stuck into the book, read it at your own pace, but, like, without doing the daily discussions and a chapter per day, just read it you could catch up um but no the cool thing was that i'm so used to seeing the same names every day you know this the people who are up to date and reading but there's a whole other community of people doing a year of war and peace right now who are behind as well and it's good to see that they're still participating in the subreddit all the when someone talks about being behind there's all these other people who say yeah i'm a bit behind too or you know i'm a few chapters behind i'm a few months behind or whatever but they're still reading war and peace this year and anyway that was the cool thing about that post as i scrolled through there's quite a few comments uh 11 at the moment comments of people kind of giving encouraging messages and quite a few of the usernames i don't recognize so that's cool there's like a subculture to this culture, you know, <laughs> the dark web of war and peace, the people who were behind. Uh, anyway, that was cool. Well, with no discussion, let's get stuck into the chapter because, well, here's why. It's a long chapter and I don't want to be here all night, so I'm going to blast through this long chapter. It's chapter six and it goes like this. Though Balashev was used to imperial pomp, he was amazed at the luxury and magnificence of Napoleon's court, 
the Comte de Turenne showed him into the big reception room where many generals, gentlemen in waiting, and Polish magnates, several of whom Balashev had seen at the court of the Emperor of Russia, were waiting. Durok said that Napoleon would receive the Russian general before going for his ride. After some minutes, the gentleman in waiting, who was on duty, came into the great reception room and, bowing politely, asked Balashev to follow him. Balashev went into a small reception room, one door of which led into a study, the very one from which the Russian emperor had dispatched him on his mission. He stood a minute or two, waiting. He heard hurried footsteps beyond the door. Both halves of it were opened rapidly. All was silent, and then, from the study, the sound was heard of other steps. Firm and resolute, they were those of Napoleon. He had just finished dressing for his ride and wore a blue uniform opening in front over a white waistcoat so long that it covered his rotund stomach. White leather breeches tightly fitting that the fat thighs of his short legs and hessian boots. His short hair had evidently just been brushed, but one lock hung down in the middle of his broad forehead. His plump, white neck stood out sharply above the black collar of his uniform, and he smelled of eau de cologne. His full face, rather young-looking, with its prominent chin, wore a gracious and majestic expression of imperial welcome. He entered briskly with a jerk at every step and his head slightly thrown back. His whole short, corpulent figure with broad, thick shoulders and chest and stomach involuntarily protruding had that that—sorry, that imposing and stately appearance one sees in men of forty who live in comfort. It was evident, too, that he was in the best of spirits that day. He nodded in answer to Balashev's low and respectful bow, and coming up to him at once began speaking like a man who values every moment of his time and does not condescend to prepare what he has had to say but is sure he will always say the right thing and say it well. Good day, General, he said. I have received the letter you brought from Emperor Alexander and am very glad to see you. He glanced with his large eyes into Balashev's face and immediately looked past him. It was plain that Balashev's personality did not interest him at all. Evidently, only what took place within his own mind interested him. Nothing outside himself had any significance for him because everything in the world, it seemed to him, depended entirely on his will. I do not and did not desire war, he continued, but it has been forced on me even now, he emphasized the word, I am ready to receive any explanations you can give me. And he began clearly and concisely to explain his reasons for dissatisfaction with the Russian government. Judging by the calmly moderate and amicable tone in which the French emperor spoke, Balashev was firmly persuaded that he wished for peace and intended to enter the no into negotiations. When Napoleon, having finished speaking, looking, looked inquiringly at the Russian envoy, Balashev began a speech he had prepared long before. Sire, the emperor, my master. But the sight of the emperor's eyes bent on him confused him. You are flurried. Compose yourself, Napoleon seemed to say, as with a scarcely perceptible smile he looked at Balashev's uniform and sword. Balashev, re Balashev recovered himself and began to speak. He said that the emperor Alexander did not consider... Kurakin's demand for his passports a sufficient cause for war, that Kurakin had acted on his own initiative, and without his sovereign's assent, that the Emperor Alexander did not desire war and had no relations with England. Not yet, interposed Napoleon, and as if fearing to give vent to his feelings, he frowned and nodded slightly, as a sign that Balashev might proceed. After saying all he had been instructed to say, Balashev added that the Emperor Alexander wished for peace but would not enter into negotiations except on condition that, he, that here Balashev hesitated. He remembered the words of Emperor Alexander had not written in his letter but had specific, 
but had specially inserted into the rescript to Saltkov and had told Balashev to repeat to Napoleon. Balashev remembered these words, so long as a single armed foe remains on Russian soil. But some complex feeling restrained him. He could not utter them, though he wished to do so. He grew confused and said, on condition that the French army retires beyond the Neiman. Napoleon noticed Belashev's embarrassment when uttering these last words. His face twitched and the calf of his leg began to quiver rhythmically. Without moving from where he stood, he began speaking in a louder tone and more hurriedly than before. During the speech that followed, Belashev, who more than once lowered his eyes, involuntarily noticed the quivering of Napoleon's left leg, which increased the more Napoleon raised his voice. I desire peace, no less than Alexander, he began. Emperor Alexander. Have I not... For eighteen months been doing everything to obtain it. I have waited eighteen months for explanations, but in order to begin negotiations, what is demanded of me? He said, frowning and making an energetic gesture of inquiry with his small, white, plump hand. The withdrawal of your army beyond the Neiman, sire, replied Belashev. The Neiman, repeated Napoleon. So now you want me to retire beyond the Neiman? Only the Neiman, repeated Napoleon, looking straight at Belashev. The latter bowed his head respectfully. Instead of the demand of four months earlier to withdraw from Pomerania, only a withdrawal beyond the Neiman was now demanded. Napoleon turned quickly and began to pace the room. You say the demand now is that I am to withdraw beyond the Neiman before commencing negotiations, but in just the same way two months ago the demand was that I should withdraw beyond the Vistula and the Order, the Oda, and yet you are willing to negotiate. He went in silence from one corner of the room to the other and again stopped in front of Belashev. Belashev noticed that his left leg was quivering faster than before and his face seemed petrified in its stern expression. This quivering of his left leg was a thing Napoleon was conscious of. The vibration of my left calf is a great sign with me, he remarked at a later date. Such demands as to retreat beyond the Vistula and Oda may be made to a Prince of Baden, but not to me, Napoleon almost screamed, quite to his own surprise. If you gave me Petersburg and Moscow, I could not accept such conditions. You say I have begun this war, but who first joined his army? The Emperor Alexander, not I, and you offer me negotiations when I have expanded, expended millions, when you are in alliance with England, and when your position is a bad one. You offer me negotiations, but what is the aim of your alliance with England? What has she given you? He continued hurriedly, evidently no longer trying to show the advantages of peace and discuss its possibility, but only to prove his own rectitude and power and Alexander's errors and duplicity. The commencement of his speech had obviously been made with the intention of demonstrating the advantages of his position and of showing that he was nevertheless willing to negotiate, but he had begun talking, and the more he talked, the less he could control his words. The whole purport of his remarks now was evidently to exalt himself and insult Alexander, just what he had least desired at the commencement of the interview. I hear you have made peace with Turkey. Balashev bowed his head affirmatively. Peace has been concluded, he began. But Napoleon did not let him speak. He evidently wanted to do all the talking himself and continued to talk with the sort of eloquence and unrestrained irritability to which spoiled people are so prone. Yes, I know you have made peace with the Turks without obtaining Moldavia and Wallachia. I would have given your sovereign these provinces as I gave them Finland. Yes, he went on, I promised and would have given the Emperor Alexander Moldavia and Wallachia. And now he won't have those splendid provinces. Yet he might have united them to his empire and in a single reign would have extended Russia from the Gulf of Bath 
Bothnia to the mouths of the Dunabi. Catherine the Great could not have done more, said Napoleon, growing more and more excited as he paced up and down the room, repeating to Balashev almost the very words he had used to Alexander himself at Tilsit. All that he would have owned all that he would have owed to my friendship. Oh what a splendid reign, he repeated several times, then paused, drew from his pocket a gold snuff box, lifted it to his nose, and greedily sniffed at it. What a splendid reign the Emperor Alexander might have been. He looked compassionately at Balashev, who, and as soon as the latter tried to make some rejoinder, hastily interrupted him. What could he wish for that he would not have obtained through my friendship? demanded Napoleon, shrugging his shoulders in perplexity. But no, he has preferred to surround himself with my enemies, and with whom? With Steens, Amfelts, Benincens, and with Tinsgerodes. Stein, a traitor, expelled from his own country, Alfeld, a rake and an intriguer, Wint Zingerod, a fugitive French subject, Benningsen, rather more of a soldier than others, but all the same an incompetent one who was unable to do anything in 1807 and who would also, who should awaken terrible memories in the Alexander, Emperor Alexander's mind. Sorry about that reading, that was terrible. Granted that that were they competent, they might be made use of, continued Napoleon, hardly able to keep pace in his words with the rush of thoughts that incessantly sprang up, proving how right and strong he was. In his perception, the two were one and the same. But they are not ev even that. They are neither fit for war nor peace. Barclay is said to be the most capable of them all, but I cannot say so, judging by his first movements. And what are they doing, all these courtiers? Fuel per purposes, Armfelt disputes, Benningson considers, and Barclay, called on to act, does not know what to decide on, and time passes bringing no result. Bagration alone is a military man, he's stupid, but he has experience, a quick eye, and resolution. And what role is your young monarch playing in that monstrous crowd? They comprise him and throw him on the responsibility for all that happens. A sovereign should not be with the army unless he is a general, said Napoleon, evidently uttering these words as a direct challenge to the emperor. He knew how Alexander desired to be a military commander. The campaign began only a week ago and you haven't even been able to defend Vilna. You are cut in two and have been driven out of the Polish provinces. Your army is grumbling. On the contrary, your majesty, said Balashev, hardly able to remember what he had been said to him and following these verbal fireworks with difficulty the troops are burning with eagerness i know everything napoleon interrupted him i know everything i know the number of your battalions as exactly as i know my own you have not two hundred thousand men and i have three times that number i give you my word of honor said napoleon forgetting that his word of honor could carry no weight I give you my word of honour that I have 530,000 men this side of Vistula. The Turks will be of no use to you. They are worth nothing and have shown it by making peace with you. As for the Swedes, it is their fate to be governed by mad kings. Their king was insane and they changed him for another, Bernadotte, who promptly went mad. For no Swede would ally himself with Russia unless they were mad. Napoleon grinned maliciously and again raised his snuff-box to his nose. Balashev knew how to reply to each of Napoleon's remarks and would have done so. He continually made the gesture of a man wishing to say something, but Napoleon always interrupted him. To the alleged insanity of the Swedes, Balashev wished to reply that when Russia is on her side, Sweden is practically an island, but Napoleon gave an angry exclamation to drown his voice. 
Napoleon was in that state of irritability in which man has to talk, talk, and talk merely to convince himself that he is in the right. Balashev began to feel uncomfortable. As envoy, he feared to demean his dignity and felt the necessity of replying, but as a man, he shrank before the transport of groundless wrath that had evidently seized Napoleon. He knew that none of the words now uttered by Napoleon had any significance, and that Napoleon himself would be ashamed of them when he came to his senses. Balashev stood with downcast eyes, looking at the movements of Napoleon's stout legs and trying to avoid meeting his eyes. But what do I care about your allies, said Napoleon. I have allies, the Poles. There are 80,000 of them, and they fight like lions, and there will be 200,000 of them. And probably still more perturbed by the fact that he had uttered this obvious falsehood, and that Balashev still stood silently before him, in the same attitude of submission to a fate, Napoleon abruptly turned round, drew close to Balashev's face, and gesticulating rapidly and energetically with his white hands, almost shouted, Now... Know that if you stir up Prussia against me, I'll wipe it off the map of Europe, he declared, his face pale and distorted by anger, and he stuck one of his small hands energetically with the other. Yes, I will throw you back beyond the Divina and beyond the Dnieper, and we will re-erect against you that barrier which it was criminal and blind of Europe to allow to be destroyed. Yes, that is what will happen to you. That is what you have gained by alienating me and he walked silently several times up and down the room, his fat shoulders twitching. He put his snuff box into his waistcoat pocket, took it out again, lifted it several times to his nose, and stopped in front of Balashev. He paused, looked ironically straight into Balashev's eyes, and said in a quiet voice, And yet what a splendid reign your master might have had. Balashev, feeling it incumbent on him to reply, said that from the Russian side of things did not appear in so gloomy a light. Napoleon was silent, still looking derisively at him and evidently not listening to him. Balashev said that in Russia the best results were expected from the war. Napoleon nodded condescendingly as if to say, I know it's your duty to say that, but you don't believe it yourself. I have convinced you. When Balashev had ended, Napoleon again took out his snuff box, sniffed at it, and stamped his foot twice on the floor as a signal. The door opened. A gentleman in waiting, bending respectfully, handed the emperor his hat and gloves. Another brought him a pocket handkerchief. Napoleon, without giving them a glance, turned to Belashev. Assure the emperor Alexander from me, said he, taking his hat, that I am as devout, sorry, devoted to him as before. I know him thoroughly, and very highly esteem his lofty qualities. I will detain you no longer, general. You shall receive my letter to the emperor. And Napoleon went quickly to the door. Everyone in the reception room rushed forward and descended the stairs. All right, there we go. That was a beast of a chapter. Napoleon losing his mind. Have your say about it. I'm going to go to bed and I'll see you tomorrow.